And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. I have my good friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you, Pam? I'm doing great, and I get to look out my window, and it's blue skies, and the sun's out, which is pretty amazing for the first of December. So it's a good day. It is. So when we first spoke about COVID back in late March, did you ever think we'd uh, still be talking about it in December? No, I actually never wished we'd still be talking about it in December, right? This has been a long and draining time, and I thought we were doing well this summer, and then to have it come back so rapidly and so early in the fall. Um, it's just been really tough on everybody, I think. And I'm hoping that by this time in March, well, it would be a year in March 12th, that maybe we don't have to talk about it then. And really, the people that I really feel the worst for are the young people who had a year of their life disrupted and then the aging who really have had to kind of hunker down in the twilight of their life. And, um, I just feel for them. I agree with you. I think for kids and and, uh, especially the kids in high school and college where these are really important years, what they're missing in terms of their social development, social growth is is never going to be recovered. And then for the elderly, I mean, my mom passed in June. Many people, it's the last time of their lives and they're not being able to spend it in the way that they would have loved to. So if we, the sooner we can get, back to normal, the better off we're all going to be. Hopefully we all learn to appreciate each other a lot more and appreciate what we've had in terms of freedoms and um, health and that we never lose that appreciation. And um, as it relates to this thing being over, um, today I'm going to have a lot of questions, um, probably unfortunately for you, about a potential vaccine. But let's start with uh, an update. Can you uh, let us know what your current census is and uh, what you're seeing here locally? Yeah, we seem to be in a little bit of a um, recovery. I'm not going to count it as recovery because it's very, very short term right now. But last time we talked, we had 72 positive patients with three unbends and three awaiting results. And today we have 68 positive patients with four unbends and four awaiting results. Um, in terms of deaths, last time we had 112. This time we've had 119. So there has been quite a few deaths. And I think on Thanksgiving, we had three deaths. So that was very sad for the staff and for for the community here. Um, in terms of the DuPage County, last time we spoke, which was only a week ago, there were 42,201 positive people. Now there are 45,446 positive people. So DuPage County continues to grow. Uh, deaths, they had 709 deaths. As of uh, today, 790 deaths. And in the state, the, uh, we had 666,000 patients last time. We have 728,000 7, positive patients with uh, deaths going from 12,141 to uh, 13,015. So those are very sobering statistics, although Elmhurst seems to be 
getting a little bit better the last few days and stabilizing. Hopefully that continues. We do have good news. The good news is discharges. We have uh, gone from 896 discharges to 953, and we're hoping to get to 1,000 this week so we can have a big celebration. And um, our recovery rate for the state remains at 97%. Anything new on uh, your testing capability, or is it pretty much status quo where it was? Well, we still are doing the four different types of testing, and that's going well. We can perform between 800 and 1,200 uh, molecular tests per day. And we're still in the process of validating a new type of COVID test, which is called the Binex Now, which is an antigen test that's made by Abbott. And that test is a kind that is a point-of-care test, which is similar to a home pregnancy test. So it doesn't require all the instrumentation run, and it gets results in 15 minutes. So th this test has currently received the emergency use authorization from the FDA, and it can only be used on symptomatic patients during the first seven days of their symptoms. But we anticipate that this antigen test will take some of the workload off of our rapid testing, and so we will. We have about 1,200 of these tests, um, and so once we've validated the test, we'll start being able to use those. So you mentioned that they could only be used on uh, symptomatic patients. This new test does that mean that that symptomatic and asymptomatic patients not only have different symptoms, but the presence of the virus is different in each of them? Uh, I really don't know the answer to that. I do know that, um, you know, antigen testing isn't as sensitive as the other testing, and so I'm sure it has something to do with the viral load in the person. Um, so I expect that the viral load is higher in the symptomatic patient. With the uh, increase in positive COVID tests uh, the last couple of months, have you also experienced that with hospital staff where you've got more staff that are getting infected outside of the hospital? Perhaps. Yep, we certainly are seeing many, many more staff being positive, and it's directly correlating with the increase in what's going on in the community. And the majority of our employees that are positive do, um, we, we can only trace the exposures back to community and family exposures. So it's not necessarily because they're working in a hospital, they're just reflective of what's going on in the community. Of course, that doesn't mean that some people don't get it by being exposed at the hospital. That's more rare than it is a common. Can you compare your current uh, non-COVID patient volume, procedure volume, with what your volume was about a year ago? So in terms of our outpatient volumes uh, and people being um, admitted to the hospital, our outpatient volumes are lower than they were a year ago. And in terms of admissions, I can tell you specifically, um, we admitted in November of 2019 1,495 people, and in November of 2020, we admitted 1,376 patients. And in that 1,376 patients are many COVID patients. So the types of patients are different as well as lower volume. We've discharged um, about 100 less as well um, in November. So do you, do you read anything into that, why the numbers are lower in terms of admittance? Well, I think there's lots of reasons for that. I think people aren't getting treatment. Um, I think people aren't out getting sick <laughs> or they're not having accidents because they're not doing as many things. Um, so a lot, and a lot of people are not choosing to have elective surgeries that 
may have done it in the past because they want to wait till all this is over. So there's lots of reasons for it. Our emergency department has um, been slower up until this last month, and now it's really busy again. But um, the rest of the time, it's been much slower than it has been in previous years. I don't remember um, whether you've said in the past whether you're on a calendar year or a different fiscal year, but can you give us an idea that after the stimulus money that you did receive what your budget shortfall will be for this year? Well, what I can tell you is from January of 2020 through October of 2020, and and that's the calendar year, we're on a fiscal year, so this isn't our budget, but um, if I were to look at just those months, we are currently, including the stimulus money we got, $4.2 million behind budget for that same time period. Can you give us an update on your staff shortages um, and in particular maybe the types of jobs that are that you're looking to fill and, and maybe even some of the volunteer jobs you're looking to fill? Sure. So we're, we've been really lucky because we've been able to staff the, ho- the hospital. You know, we've been able to support staffing by using incentive pay for our staff, using agency, using small labor pools from our ambulatory sites, and for staff who have volunteered to work above what the, the number of hours they're hired to work, and by adding seasonal roles. So we continue to hire new employees and are utilizing creative strategies to increase our applicant pool. So over the next two weeks, we have 30 new nurse residents that we've uh, been working with for the past year who will have completed their orientation and will be able to uh, get out into the world on the floors and, and be full-time nurses. We, um, As of yesterday, we had 37 new hires start at Elmhurst Hospital. Of those 37, 26 were RNs and PCTs for the hospital. PCTs are the patient care technicians. Um, we continue to hire new employees each week, and most our most critical staffing needs remain RNs, patient care technicians, medical assistants, and patient sitters. Some of the positions require working on the COVID floors while others don't. We're hiring for all shifts, but could really utilize help on the night shift, which is traditionally hard to staff. And we've been working with local colleges and universities, which has proven to be a great resource to hire students who are on extended breaks over the holidays. Many are hired into seasonal positions, and that benefits both them and us, and we're hoping that when they are have graduated, they will come back to work for us. I did orientation yesterday. I must have had 70 people in orientation. They were nurses and PCTs for the system. Many of those PCTs were hired because their schools told them about our seasonal job and their nursing students, and they were very excited to come work for us. Um, we also are going to start for the first time, a second nurse residency program in uh, January. So if anybody is interested, the deadline to apply for that program is this Friday. Uh, But we normally only do one a year, and so having a second one for this year is going to be something unique. And so if anybody's interested, we already do have quite a few applicants for it, but, you know, get your name in there by December 4th. And then we are looking um, at creative ways of bringing people in. So we've been doing virtual job fairs and referral bonus programs. So we're paying our staff if they get really good people in to work and if the people stay here for a few months. Um, Last week we had a virtual job fair where we were able to um, interview RNs and PCTs, and we had about 40 very viable applicants come from that virtual job fair. And, um, And we also, because of the COVID 
surge have some non-clinical roles available, meaning you don't have to have any uh, healthcare experience. Those jobs include guest service associates. Those are people who greet visitors and take their temperatures at the entrances. Housekeeping associates who just clean rooms um, and clean up areas to keep things looking good and, um, and safe for patients. And then patient service reps, and those are the people who check you in in our outpatient offices. And we will train people. If anybody's interested in those roles, either short-term, because we'll do it on a temporary basis, or long-term, they can apply at www.eehealth.org, which is our careers page. You do have to apply online. That's the one thing we do require. Did I hear you mention a patient sitter? Yes. What is that? So that is... That's somebody who will sit in the room and keep a patient company and, and make sure that they don't try to get out of bed, you know, just talk to them um, and just watch to make sure that they're not having any uh, distress or anything. And if they do ha see something or the patient is uncomfortable, they just call staff to come help them. So they just sit in the room with the patient. And is that the kind of job that a volunteer could, could take on or does it really need to be an employee? Um, we don't, we're not really having volunteers do those kind of roles right now, but we would hire somebody on a temporary basis to do something like that and train them because it does take a little bit of training to understand what to look for and how to use, you know, our systems here, but we would love to hire anybody to come do that. And you mentioned, uh, the nurse residency programs. Is that a program for somebody who is currently in nursing school or somebody who's graduated? Somebody who is just graduating from nursing school. Okay. So it's, it's to help them transition into being a, uh, a full-time nurse on a floor. It's hard to go from school and then be responsible for all those patients. So we have a residency program that helps them uh, transition into the role. So my disclaimer for this next section is I realize that a lot of this information may not be in your hands yet, but I have a barrage of questions about the vaccine. The first of which is, does it appear that people who've already suffered from the disease will be recommended to get this vaccine at some point in time? So I, I love that question because I asked the same question today when I was in another meeting because we really don't have any information on anything. So at this moment, we're waiting to hear the recommendations from the CDC if individuals who were positive with COVID would be eligible to receive the vaccine because we still don't know how long your immunity will last once you've had COVID. We imagine you would probably need the vaccine next year and not necessarily this year, depending on when you had COVID. But if you had COVID in March and we're coming on almost a year later, it's all about timing. So we have to wait and see what the CDC says. And as it relates to that, does it appear that if you do get a vaccination, you'll need one annually, at least until the, the the virus kind of disappears for a while? Again, that's what we're waiting on to hear. We don't know. So we're assuming it's going to be annual, but we don't know yet. So we've heard reports in the media that some people who've received the vaccination in the, in the test group have suffered with COVID-like symptoms for as much as 24 hours after receiving one of the vaccinations. Um, is that what you're hearing too in the medical community? Yes, um, we've heard that there's been some mild symptoms, side effects uh, that individuals experience, but that's not anything different than what happens with the flu. When you've had your flu vaccine, sometimes you get a little fever or you don't feel good for a day or two, and that's pretty 
that does happen. It's not everybody, but occasionally people do feel that way. But they're not getting COVID or they're not getting the flu. They just have mild symptoms for a day or two. And realizing that there are, at this point, at least three companies that have vaccines that are nearly ready, are they all are they all administered the same way via shot or orally or I assume it's a shot, right? It is a shot, and it's exactly the same way as the flu shot. But I, I believe that they are. It's it's a two step process, so it's two two shots. I think it's I, I think it's about a month apart. I don't know the exact amount of days apart. So when we do get it, we're going to have to set up a process for giving the first shot and then making sure you come back in the right amount of days for the second shot. And then we have to evaluate you, I think it's a month later, on how you're doing so that we can get data to share with the results of the vaccination program. And uh, do you think it feels like you got punched in the arm the next day after you get the shot? I think it feels like that depending on, you know, how you tolerate shots. Because I can tell you there's times when I've had flu shots when I feel like my arm is in pain for days. And then there's other times when I don't even remember I had it. So I think it happens the same way. That's good nurse, bad nurse, right? <laughs> could be, but it could be the shot too. And what, where, where hitting your muscle. <laughs> Last week we talked about the cold temperatures that uh, at least two of the vaccines need to be stored at. Are they administered at that cold temperature as far as you know also? No, they're not. They are, um, there's a process to, for bringing the temperature down. And then we have a certain amount of time that we have to deliver the medication within, or it will no, not long be good. So it is not hours, it's days, but, you know, there are specific instructions on, that we have to follow on how we have to store and then how we have to warm it before we give the shots. When I go to get my flu shot every year, I usually sign uh, a waiver that says, you know, I don't have allergies to eggs and I've never had this or that. Is it going to be a similar sort of process, do you think, with this vaccination that you can't have certain conditions or um, otherwise it would preclude you from getting the shot? So we don't know that yet. We're still waiting for CDC guidance on what the contraindications are. We assume there will be some contraindications, but we don't know which ones yet. Well, that's a, that's the fancy term for what I just said, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you uh, have any more information this week about when you might receive those first vaccines? Um, I know last week you were hoping it would be early December, but I've kind of heard in the media that there might be some delays. Yeah, we were really hopeful that it was going to be the first week of December, and we had heard there was quite a large number coming, and now we've heard that's been cut like down to one-tenth of what they originally told us was coming to the area. Um, we're hoping in the next week or two, though. It's, we're, we're anticipating it's still on schedule that way. When you first get a uh, an inpatient that's suffering from COVID, typically how long have they had the symptoms before they require hospitalization? Like, are they suffering for several weeks and they just can't get rid of it or a day? Or, I mean, I'm sure it's all over the board, but is there kind of a typical case? Yeah, typically it's on average they've been suffering about four to five days before they require hospitalization. They're uh, generally having trouble breathing. Is that generally why they're admitted? Yes. I mean, either a very, very high fever, but primarily it's for their respiratory distress that people come into the hospital. So we talked a lot about treatments over the last few months, and one of them is convalescent plasma. So my question's, you know, kind of twofold. One, are you, uh, is that still being used quite a bit? And then two, with the recent increase in cases, 
that would seem to to me to mean that there are more folks out there that will have convalescent plasma shortly after they recover. And are are you getting more donations of that convalescent plasma, assuming you're still using it? Well, first of all, yes, we are still using it. We need it very badly. And now there is a shortage of convalescent plasma. And I don't. I think the reason there is a shortage is not necessarily because less people are donating. I think maybe the same amount are donating, but we need an increased amount donated because the use is way up. So, for example, well, um, when, in the summer when we were using it, it only took on average a few hours to get a, enough dosages for us to be able to give to our patients. Um, and in particular, the types of blood types that we really need convalescent plasma are, are the more um, difficult blood types to get, which is type B and AB. Uh, so if anybody's out there with B or AB, please, please, please donate convalescent plasma. So at Elmhurst, um, the amount of convalescent plasma we've been infusing has doubled over um, the last few months. So in November, we actually have given 117 uh, infusions of convalescent plasma. As compared to in October, we only gave 54 um, infusions of convalescent plasma. And currently, we have eight patients who are, on a, are waiting for units of convalescent plasma. So if you're eligible, um, to donate, and this is what eligibility is, evidence of COVID-19 either by molecular testing or a positive serological test uh, for COVID antibodies, so one or the other, that you've had a positive COVID-19 molecular test or an antibody test that was positive, and you have had resolution of your symptoms, so you no longer are sick for at least 14 days, then you're eligible to donate. And all you have to do is go to Versity, which is V-E-R-S-I-T-I dot org, and they will be the ones to schedule you and tell you everything you need to do. Because we don't, we don't take the donations here, but Versity knows where they're doing donations, and they're the ones who give us the convalescent plasma so we can give it to our patients. And uh, B or AB are the two that are in uh, most need, Correct. Correct. Okay, so hopefully we'll get that word out. Um, as it relates to the recent spikes, how are your uh, supplies of PPE holding out? We're doing okay. You know, we look at it daily, and anytime we project that we're going to have an issue, we go out and we're able to gather a lot more in. And we have, you know, our business office complex, which we were we were looking to sell. Um, right now, it, it has our all our laundry that's on it in the north side of uh, Elmhurst, but it is completely full of storage right now, and all that is PPE there. So we're very lucky we have the building still, and we're using it to store our PPE so our staff never have to worry about having the right equipment. And then uh, one last thing I want to ask you about again. We talked last week about a couple of the events that are coming up that uh, raise money for the Elmhurst Memorial Hospital Foundation Love Lights and the Reindeer House Walk slash Drive this year. Can you give us just some more details on that and and maybe uh, let us know when we're going to know which block is lit up as part of the Reindeer House Drive? I actually have the information on the block, so let me just... Okay, so the locations are, there's houses on Arlington Avenue, there's houses on uh, Lawndale Avenue, on Prairie Avenue, 
um, on Parkview Avenue, and our block, our featured block that will all be decorated, is on South Street between Poplar and Fair, Fair Avenue. South Street between Poplar and Fair. Yes. You don't have to buy any tickets. You don't have to do anything, but these are all going to be just drive-by. You'll see all the lights decorated. We've had businesses help decorate, and, you know, we're very thankful to the community for doing this. And if you go on the website, if you do want to donate, since there's no tickets to buy this year, you can just donate whatever you would like to because um, it does support our Team Volunteer Health Profession scholarship fund and we do give out these scholarships every year to teens who are going into the medical field and so that money goes directly to that it doesn't go to anything else and so we really would uh, appreciate anybody who would like to donate but please do drive by these people went to a lot of trouble to decorate i am going to be driving by to not no tomorrow it starts wednesday it's wednesday thursday and friday evening i'm and it's from five to seven and i will be driving tomorrow between five and seven with some people in the car because we all want to thank everybody for this wonderful um, recognition of the community supporting our teens and our organization. And then Love Lights? So, so Love Lights, um, our normal annual Love Lights, is actually we're not doing anything that people are going to be at. What we are going to do is go ahead and do the lighting ourselves and um, nobody will be out there so you're not going to miss anything. But that will be tomorrow, um, December 2nd. It will be lit. And um, what we're asking, though, is if you would like somebody recognized, either somebody who's passed or somebody who has done a great job as a caregiver or a volunteer or a special friend or anything, if you donate $25 in their name, they will be recognized in the Elmhurst Independent and in the December 31st issue. So I always uh, recognize my father, and this year will be the first year with my mother passed in June, so I will be recognizing her. I do think it's a wonderful way to just send up wishes and recognition to people who you care about, and um, it's a simple $25 donation per person that you're recognizing. And I know the easiest way for me is eehealth.org. It's slash love dash lights. Gotcha. Slash love dash lights. Thanks so much. I appreciate you spending time with us here again today. And I encourage folks to go on the website and donate and get out in the community in your car and check out those fun homes that are decorated. Check those out. Look forward to it. Thanks so much, Pam. Thank you. I really appreciate everything you're doing for our community. And, you know, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and I'm looking forward to this holiday season being safe and next holiday season being very different. Same to you. Thanks, Pam. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.